Thank you again, APU Choir, and Michael, it's good to see you. Glad to have you back. Amen. So how are you doing? Probably a couple hundred different answers to that question, huh? It is good to see you today, and, uh, you know, I'm doing well. I had a great week. You, too, came out with their new CD. You've all got it, right? Ah, oh, you're breaking my heart here. What kind of group is this? Anyhow, that fixed my week, so I'm happy. And uh, I have a dose of hope for you today. A dose of hope for you today. Do you realize that uh, some of you in this room have some things the richest couple in the world don't have? And I'm not talking spiritually. I'm talking materially. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit of a materialist in my ways. I'm still getting converted from that. But uh, I read an article in the L.A. Times, and it caught my attention. It was in the business section. And uh, you've, you've heard of Melinda and Bill Gates? They've kind of changed the world with Microsoft. Yeah, very rich. Do you know Melinda has some things she wants to buy and she can't buy them? Less than $500 is what it costs and she still can't buy it. Look, the article said this. She was interviewed by Vogue magazine and Melinda said, Every now and then I look at my friends and say, Oh, I wouldn't mind having that iPod or that iPhone. (laughs) Here's what she says. If you don't understand that, ask somebody a little younger than you are. Uh, there are a few, th- there are, there are a few things, there are very few things that are banned in our house from our children, Melinda said, but iPods and iPhones are two things that we won't get our kids. So the poor Gates, you know, it's too bad. Some of these APU guys have got stuff that Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and the kids can't have. So if you have an iPhone, you're one up on Bill Gates. Uh, go figure. Anyhow. We're going to open our Bibles today, and there are some Bibles in front of you. You can turn to page 687. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. And we are talking about looking up in down times. And we're looking at the miracles of Jesus and being encouraged by some of the miracles of Jesus. Now, while you're finding Mark chapter 5, I don't know where you were last Wednesday evening, but at 5.30 I was right here, and I had some delicious... Shepherd's pie. It was good. Homemade, with homemade biscuits, dessert after the pie. It was really good. And after I stuffed myself on some homemade shepherd's pie, then we feasted at the Word, and all the way from Rome was Pontius Pilate and his wife Claudia. It was amazing. And they talked about truth, and we were confronted with the truth of Christ. And so just wanted to let you know what I was doing last Wednesday. And uh, this Wednesday, as you hear, Barabbas is going to get out of jail in Texas and be up here, and uh, we'll, we'll meet Barabbas. So hope you join us, if you can, for the Lenten series, 5.30's dinner at 6.10. We have the Bible study. It's over at 7 o'clock. You can go on about your business or go to the choir or whatever you uh, need to do. So we're having a good time with Lent. Um, this past week, I spent some time, as most of you, I think, know, or I hope you know, we're looking for a director of children's ministry. And we're advertising for that position, and people call, and we interview them. And I interviewed a couple people last week, and I love meeting people when I'm getting ready to hire somebody. Making the decision who to hire is always challenging. But talking to people and saying, well, tell me a little bit about your life. How did you meet God? How has God worked in your life? It's fun to hear their stories. And each story is different, and it's always an encouragement to me to hear, especially the young people, how God has worked in their life and is changing their life. Now, today I want to talk to you about stories. And we all have a story. 
Everybody has a story. There's, there's no exception to this. You have a story. I have a story. And the reality is your story is different than my story. And there's a story in Scripture. And I want to look at this story with you in some detail this morning because it's fascinating to see this story and reflect on our own story. And the story is found in Mark chapter 5. Now, in Mark, we're about a third of the way through the gospel of Mark at this point. It's a short gospel. And Jesus has been teaching. He's been preaching. His fame has going up and to the right. And so crowds follow him. And uh, he wants to take a break. So in the previous chapter, he's gotten on a boat and gone across the Sea of Galilee. And it's the storm story. We looked at it. The storm comes up. He calms the wind and the waves. Now, when he gets to the other side of the lake, that's where we're picking up with the story today. And it's in uh, Mark chapter 5. Let me read the first uh, few verses. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones." Now, I hope you have a good imagination, because this story uh, works best if you have a good imagination. As I said, Jesus was teaching and preaching, and he now has crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and he has come to the southeastern section. It's Gentile country. We really have no idea why he was there. And as he comes to this region, it's a region that was actually founded by Alexander the Great. You hear him in history. And he established ten cities. They're called the Decapolis. And in these ten cities, Alexander the Great established them, and then Pompey later came in, and he brought them under Roman authority. And at this time, when Jesus was there, they were ruled by the Syrians under the authority of Rome. There was a Syrian legate there. And so Jesus goes to this primarily Gentile place. Now, as he goes there, uh, he gets out of the boat, and here's where you have to kick in your imagination a little bit, where Jesus with his disciples... And as he gets out of the boat, I picture a hillside, and here comes this guy out of the cemetery running down at Jesus. What do you think his hair looked like? Wild, yeah. Hair everywhere, lots of it. What do you think his face looked like? Lots of lots of hair on his face. Maybe spittle running down. I happen to think he was naked. We'll get to that later. Sorry for the image. And he comes running down to see Jesus, and here he comes, and there was other things about him. He had scabs and scars all over him. Why do I say that? Because he often cut himself with stones, the Scripture says. So this guy is a mess. Can you picture him coming down to meet Jesus? And he falls at his feet and uh, speaks to Jesus. Now, I want to pick up on a couple of things. In verse 6, it says he saw Jesus from a distance. He fell on his knees. Verse 7, it says he shouts at the top of his voice. And what he says is, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. Now, at this point, you realize that this crazy man is actually not talking. A demon is talking through him. And just a little technical word here. When he says to Jesus, this demon says to Jesus, In God's name, don't torture me. Uh, in the translation we're reading, it's really not a very good translation for this word because what he literally says is, I implore you, or I command you. He uses a technical word that an exorcist uses. 
And Jesus has used this word. If you were an exorcist and you're casting out a demon, you would use this word and say, I implore you, I command you, I exercise you out. And the demon actually turns the table on Jesus and implores Jesus not to have to leave the man's body. Now, oftentimes you think of a miracle and you think, bang, there's a miracle. And it's over like that. This story actually goes on and on. And if you read it, there's a conversation, a dialogue going on here. It's not instantaneous. And I get kind of excited when I read it because after this man says that to Jesus, he says, in God's name, don't torture me. In verse 8, Jesus said, come out of this man, uh, you evil spirit. He'd already said that to him. So there's a conversation going back and forth. Now, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a crazy man or crazy woman. Have you? You don't have to raise your hand. But have you ever seen somebody really crazy? What their eyes look like? Red like fire. Their hair's a mess. And when you're in their presence, you can just sense something's wrong. They don't have to say anything. You can just see it. You can feel it. Um, I've been around a few crazy people. I was uh, thinking when I went through this story of my first pastorate in Chicago at Logan Square. It was an inner city, and we had a young man join the church. He was Polish background, and he had just gotten out of the military. He was a paratrooper. Nice guy. But after a few years, something slipped in Leonard, and uh, he began missing church. And so I went to visit him one time, and he had just gotten weird. And he was living in an abandoned bar in Chicago. There's, every third building is a bar. So that wasn't too unusual. And I went in there and knocked on the door. It was locked. The, the electricity was off in the building. I'm not sure how he was living there. But as I went into this bar, it's set up just like a small bar. There's the big old oak counter on the left side, and there's tables there. And I went to the middle or back of the bar where Leonard was, and as my eyes adjusted to the light, I could see Leonard, and he had a coat on because he was cold. And I looked at this table in front of me, and there were pills everywhere. And as I began to talk to Leonard and could finally look in his eyes, I became more and more frightened and decided the best thing I need to do is get out of here because he was just out of his mind on drugs, like demons were in him. And I was afraid of him in some sense. Now, uh, I got out of there. But have you ever seen a, a crazy man? Picture that with this person rushing down to see Jesus. I don't know what the disciples did, but I, my guess is they were getting ready to get in the boat, and John had a big oar, and he's ready to, you know, I'll get him once, Peter, and you get him again. And, uh, you know, they're about to leave, and Jesus is there with this man. So that's the scene. Now, um, I'm going to ask you a question several times throughout this experience. What's your story? What's your story? We've all got a story. And this is how this man's story starts. It starts with this uh, craziness going on, if you would. In uh, class 301, that's not the class coming up next week, but we have a class here we offer several times a year, and it's called what, what is Your Shape? And in that class, we review your story to find out what experiences and how has your family and other things shaped you so that uh, that story then can help you in ministry. You have to look back and understand how God has shaped you, what experiences have shaped you, how life has shaped you in order to understand how God's going to use you. So everybody has a story. Now, your story has a name. And I want to look at the next uh, verses, 6 through 10. Your story has a name. Uh, naming is very important. Can you imagine a baby being born and the months go by and the parents are asked, what's her name? You say, I don't know, we haven't named her yet. 
It would be like denying the existence of the child, wouldn't it? If you just never named the child. Naming is very important. When you go to the doctor and you talk to the doctor, he begins to probe and says, what's wrong? And he'll ask you to describe that. If you talk to a counselor, she'll say to you, well, describe your feeling. What color is it? What shape is it? They want to name it so they can then deal with it. Naming is very important. And in verse 9a, Jesus says to this man, demon, what is your name? What is your name? And he replies, my name is Legion. Now, several commentators say, well, the Roman legion was 6,000, so there were 6,000 demons in this man. I don't buy that. This has nothing to do with Roman legions. It's just there were multiple, as the Scripture says, there were many demons in this man. So his name is Legion, many. He's really possessed. He's really messed up. Now, as you think about naming in the Bible, just a hint of this, when, when uh, God answers Hannah's prayer, she, she wants a baby, she hasn't had a baby, finally a baby comes, she names the baby what? Samuel, God hears. It's an important name. Fast forward to, to uh, Mary. She got pregnant. Joseph is about to divorce his fiancée. And the angel comes and says, name this little baby Jesus. He's going to be a savior. Later, when Simon met Jesus, he gave him a new name. He said his name is not. Now what? Peter. He's now Simon Peter. Saul got a new name. His name was Paul. So naming is really very important. I was thinking about this in our own context. Um, and what name, if you had to choose one or two words to put on your story, what name would you give your story? What have your experiences amounted to? How would you name that? Um, when Saul was killing Christians, you might have named him Christian Killer. Uh, to move forward into contemporary uh, stories, you may know the story of Chuck Colson, who was in Watergate. He was one of Nixon's right-hand men was part of that whole scandal, and he went to prison for it. Uh, Chuck Colson might say, you know, I was a high-powered crook, and then I became, met Christ. Uh, more recently, Lee Strobel, who was a Chicago attorney, writer for the papers in Chicago, an atheist, he would say, I was an atheist, but now I'm a believer after I met Christ. You might think of the rock star, Prince, sexual. You'd surely put that into his name in his early career, but now you wouldn't say that anymore of him because he met Christ. So there's on and on there's stories about people whose lives have changed, and you can give a name to their story. And then the story before and the story after. So before moving to this next section, I'd ask you, what is your name? Now, I was going to skip this part, but I can't. Look at verse 10. It's really kind of a sidebar comment here, uh, but it is a part of the story. The demon is talking through the man, and what does he do? It says he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. What is this about? That's kind of bizarre, isn't it? So the demon is dialoguing. He's kind of negotiating with Jesus. I know you're going to kick me out of here, Jesus. I know you have the power. I know I can't stop it, but please don't send me too far away. That's a loose paraphrase. He does say, don't send me out of the area. Now, I don't have time to um, go clear down this road, but I want to give you some suggestions. There are scholars who would say this story is really not about an individual man. He's there, yes, he's crazy. But in some ways, he's a scapegoat for the whole community. There's something wrong in Decapolis, very wrong. And these people seem to put the sins that they all have onto this man. You remember the scapegoat story in the Old Testament where you put the sins on the goat and he goes away? Uh, these kind of things do happen in our societies. Let me give you some examples just to kind of tease you with this issue. 
you think this is just crazy old-fashioned language. When you talk about physical problems that people have, is it not true that in some areas of the country heart attacks are higher than in other areas? Or diabetes is higher? Or you can go on and on throughout a list, and around the country all these problems are not the same, are they? They're different. Areas have their own unique problems, medically speaking. And scientists study that to figure out what can we do. Now, coming into the spiritual world, it's really no different. And I'm going to give you an example. Uh, some have called this man a scapegoat for some of the problems in Decapolis, and that's why he's crazy. Now, when you think of our society, what are some social issues, for example, that uh, would be our demons? When we think about demons in our American cities, what might they be? You think the demon of violence is present in America? Just uh, recently, the rock star, what is Chris Brown, and his uh, fiance, his friend uh, Rihanna, they get in a fight. They both come away bruised and beaten. Why do, why do people in our society do that? Last Sunday morning in Marysville, Illinois, a pastor, Winter, stood up and preached at First Baptist Church and was shot dead. First bullet deflected by his Bible, and then he was killed. Now, you read that and you say, well, I'm sad, but do you realize that last year, in 2008, 12,000 people died in this country being shot? Suicides, murders, homicides. We've been at a war in Iraq for over five years, and a little over 4,000 have died. So in one year, in our own cities, three times the number of people died as have died in Iraq in our troops. So when I say we're a violent nation, there's a, there's a problem of violence here. That's a little bit what we're talking about here. Each region seems to have their own particular areas of demons. And Jesus has come to try to help us get over that. So that's a little sidebar comment. But when you think about verse 10, I wanted to point you in that direction. And you can think further about that. Now back to the story. Let's continue with verses 11 and, and so forth. What happens to the man? We're back to verse 11. And I want to talk to you about the high cost of help. You know the story. In verse 11, it says there were a large group of pigs feeding on the nearby hillside. Now, one of the cities in this region of ten was named Gerasa. And we happen to know that there was a temple to Zeus Olympus in that city. Guess what they liked to sacrifice at the temple of Zeus Olympus? Pigs. Jews love pigs, don't they? Not really. So if you're a Jewish reader reading this story, I think you would rejoice. There was really no loss. They got what they deserved, according to a Jewish reading. But if you're not Jewish, and we're not, uh, you wonder about this. Now, you know the story. The demon was cast out of the man, and they went into the pigs. And the pigs stampeded and ran down the hill, and they drowned in a lake. Now, some of you, in fact, many of you know, how big are pigs' feet? They're big webbed feet so they swim well? No, they're little stubby things. But, you know, a pig can float. Pigs actually don't like water too much, but they can swim. So it wasn't natural for them to swim. And some scholars have wondered, well, why did they drown? I think they drowned because they were, they were uh, crazy. There was a panic attack, a pig panic attack, and uh, they drowned. But the reality is a pig can float. They're fat. You know, fat pigs float. But I think they drowned because these weren't normal pigs. This was deviled ham. So, uh, I'm sorry. Now, some of you here may be members of PETA, P-E-T-A, which is the uh, 
people for the ethical treatment of animals. And so when you read this story, if you're a PETA person, you're, you know, you say, man, Jesus, this is just not right, where Jesus seems to destroy 2,000 pigs to save one man. But I heard that PETA stands for people eating tasty animals, so I don't know which, I don't know which side you're on here, but uh, either way, the pigs are gone. Now, um, just another comment. Some say, well, why would Jesus participate in this loss? And I hope you'll hear me here. I, the Bible speaks against cruelty to animals, so let's be clear about that. We're not to be cruel to anyone or anything. And the Bible talks about the care of God's creation. We understand that. But, but not everything is equal. And Jesus himself in Matthew 12 said, sheep are not as important as people. You can look it up. And when you think about priorities in life, people are more important than pigs. People are more important than any kind of animal. And part of this point, surely, as we'll come in a moment, is that there is this trade-off here, but I hope you're not overly upset about the pigs going the way of all the earth. Now, the question is, how much does it cost to save one man? What's the answer in the story? I can wait. You can read it there. Figure it out. Do the math. How many pigs were there? 2,000. How much does it cost to save one man? 2,000 pigs. That's kind of the, the logic here in the story. Now, one crazy man for 2,000 pigs, think about it. That's a, it's a pretty high cost. And my only point is here, as you think about stories and as you think about helping people, there is a cost to helping people, is there not? Sometimes there's a very high cost. Sometimes in America, as we look at our government, we don't really want to pay the price. We want us to be helped, but somebody else to help them, maybe not. Now, recently, a member of our church, Johnson and Eki, who are uh, natives of Africa, they're missionaries in Africa, they came to Fuller Seminary to study and train to go back to Africa to do a better job. And uh, you're aware of the complications. They went to renew their visa in Canada, and they got stuck, and they can't come back here. Now they're going home within the next couple of weeks to Africa. It cost $10,000 to get this family of four home. It's a nightmare. They've been living in other people's homes and churches for eight months with their two little kids in Canada with no resources. They're not allowed to work. They're just stuck. So you've been very generous as we've gained, raised almost $5,000 to help, and some of the churches in Canada helping, so they're going to go back. What's my point? It's just costly to help people. Lots of people need help. And that's why God calls us to be sacrificial and generous in our living so that we can be about giving. Now, in this story, it's a pretty high price. So let's move on to where we're at. Um, the last couple of verses here. The next paragraph, verses 14 through 17. When uh, you can look at the, uh, the chapter, uh, the verses here, it, uh, the title I give this section of the story is Jesus Go Home. What happens is that the uh, pigs run off into the sea. I'll put it in my own language. The pig herders, the people that watch over them, have lost the herd of pigs. So what do they do? They go to town now, and they tell the townspeople what has happened. And I think they told them two things. You'll never believe what happened to the crazy man. It's amazing. This guy Jesus came and spoke to him and cast out the demons. He's just not crazy anymore. But you'll never believe what happened to the pigs either. And so the townspeople now come back with the herdsmen, and there's the disciples there. I think there's a pretty good crowd there. And I love the Scripture because it says they got there and they see two things. One is they see the man sitting clothed in his, in his right mind. That's why I said I think he was naked because now he's clothed. I don't know. But he's in his right mind. He's normal. 
In fact, I wonder if when Jesus healed him, if his hair didn't even look better. I don't know. Maybe he needed a bath. But he's, he's in his right mind, and they see that. But what else do they see? The pigs are gone. I suppose they're floating out there in the lake. It's gross. And so what do they do? It says a couple things. First of all, they're afraid. I don't know if they're afraid of the man or afraid of Jesus, but they're afraid. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, would you go home? Please leave. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus very long, you know, sometimes that's the conclusion people reach. They really don't love Jesus. They say, Jesus, would just just go away? And the reality is, if you ask Jesus to go away, he'll go. Now, he does come back to visit him again, but he'll go. And so we need to be careful what we ask for, don't we? Because Jesus got back in the boat and he left. He went away. Jesus, go home. You have the awful power when Christ knocks on your door to send him away, no matter what your story is. Now, as Jesus is getting ready to go home, to go back to the other side, uh, this man comes up, the crazy man, and he says to Jesus, I want to go with you. Don't you think he would say that? I mean, I think he said, the Scripture doesn't say this, but I think he said, Jesus, uh, I don't care what you need, I'll go with you. If you want somebody to wash your clothes, I'll go with you and wash. If you want somebody to clean your sandals, I'll wash them. If you want somebody to feed you, I'll, Jesus, whatever you want, I'll do it for you the rest of my life. I cannot thank you enough. And Jesus turned and said, you don't need to do any of that. I don't even want you to go with me. In fact, you cannot go with me. I've already chosen my disciples. Here's what I want you to do. Go back to Decapolis and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And so what we read is that the man did that. He went back to these ten cities, and it's interesting wordplay here. Jesus said, go and say what God has done for you, what the Lord's done. He didn't do that. He said, you know what Jesus did for me? (laughs) He just kept talking about Jesus. And it says the people were amazed. The people were amazed. He went back and he told them his story. Now, as I said a moment ago, you have a story and I have a story. We all have a story. And uh, you may have been around a couple years ago. We went through Bill Hybels' great book, Just Walk Across the Room, a story about witnessing. And he challenged us to put our story into a few words. And my story would go like so, something like this. Um, I get lost easily. I'm directionally challenged. I need a navigation system. And uh, I grew up in a wonderful home, and for no particular reason but my own rebellious heart, I got lost as a teenager, really, really lost. I wanted to do my own thing, my own way. I told my dad, you're nuts for this Christianity stuff. And so as a child of the 60s, I did what I wanted to do. I was rebellious. I found a young lady who was rebellious with me, and we had a lot of fun being rebellious. But then as our first son was born, I began to realize, you know, Steve, uh, someday you're going to have to grow up and be serious about life. And God began to work in my heart on the inside. And I realized I can't keep living like this. I know a better way to live. It's the way I was raised. And so I came back to the Lord. I repented. And uh, there's a number of us who want to st- share our stories with you today. And if I could put my story in just a couple of words, here's how it would be. Once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Why don't we sing through that first verse of Amazing Grace, uh, Ted? Lead us out. 
one another as we leave, especially welcome someone that you don't know. We've got coffee and good things to eat outside. Buy somebody a cup of coffee and share with them. And as you go, look, look up to the one who loves you. As you go, look up. Look up to the one who said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. As you go, look up to the Lord. Go with the peace of the Lord. Amen.